Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, The Songs of Ascent. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Psalm 131, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown is good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. I want you to think back with me, the Old Testament account of when Samuel died. And think about David and David's life. When Samuel died, what was going on with David, you students of the Old Testament? Well, you remember, he was, he was on the run. Though anointed Israel's future king, he was classified as an outlaw by his in-law, you know, Saul, the current king. Samuel's death then, I think, must have, must have surely been a blow to David's morale. His authoritative representative, his defender, the one who knew, because he anointed David, the one who knew that David was anointed was now dead. And so, for a time, the would-be king lived, well, he lived like a fugitive, fleeing from place to place, at a safe distance from Saul's conspiratorial reach, David settled in the wilderness of Paran, Scripture tells us. And it was there that a wealthy man named Nabal was grazing his sheep. Now, David and his men were characteristically stealthy. And they only revealed themselves in their kindness to the servants of Nabal, serving as, quote, a wall both night and day, as one shepherd put it. David and his men, they preserved and they protected the wealth of Nabal with integrity. And so you would think that by virtue of that, at the very least, David and his men would be invited to the sheep-shearing feast Of Nabal. No invitation was given. Do you remember? 
only insults. Nabal denied David's identity, insulted his family, questioned his devotion, considering him unworthy for a place at a rich man's table. Ungrateful Nabal, who I might add, his name in Hebrew means the fool, well, he he played the part and snubbed the giant-killing, war-winning future king of Israel without even a thank you. And David responded. You remember how he responded? Look, David responded like any warm-blooded warrior might respond, commanding not 100, not 200, not 300, but 400 of his soldiers. And he said this, Every man strap on his sword. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. In other words, David intended to slaughter the lot of them. And he would. There's no question about it. Nabal was doomed, and he didn't even know it. But thankfully, his wife, Abigail, did. Described as both beautiful and discerning, which I might add are really helpful characteristics when it comes to calming an incensed warrior. She was both beautiful and discerning, and she prepared a meal for an army. I mean, she clearly knew the way to a man's heart, right? Or at least a way to to stall him, to pacify him, but for a moment. But it was neither her beauty, nor her discernment, nor her cooking, I might add, that saved her husband's household. Do you remember what it was? It was her humility. She stopped the charging army by falling at David's feet. Explaining the characteristic foolishness of her husband, her intent to make things right, and an appeal to David's honor that he not shed innocent blood. Including, I might add, an incredibly insightful knowledge of his anointing and the imminent reign of his throne in Israel. Nabal denied David's identity. Abigail appealed to his anointing. Nabal insulted David's family. Abigail appealed to his heritage. Nabal questioned David's devotion. Abigail appealed to his honor. Nabal incited David's vengeance. (laughs) But Abigail? Abigail appealed to his justice. Hell hath no fury like a spurned king, but peace may be made through the humble wife of a fool. Humbled by her humility, this is what David said to her. Quote, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. As it turned out, 
The gentle and quiet spirit of a woman taught the man after God's own heart the wisdom of humility. The wisdom of humility. Now, we don't know when David wrote this psalm. But I am confident that he did not write it between the period of his determined vengeance upon Nabal and Abigail's show of humility. I'm quite certain in that moment in time he did not write this psalm. And here's why I know that. Because David writes this psalm from the posture not of vengeance but of humility. Look at the psalm with me. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. His confession is meek. A submission to the Lord, Yahweh, the self-revealed name of the one true God and heavenly father of his chosen child. As Abigail appealed to God's love for David, so he readily bows his heart before him. His heart is not lifted up, but humbled. As the Bible uses the heart to convey the idea of a person's unified and rich integrity within, so David confesses, revealing a genuine meekness down to the core. Now, in contrast, one may, in fact, have a false humility. And we see this all the time, don't we? But inevitably, the truth comes out. You can only work that false humility for so long, right? I'm reminded of a man I knew who spent all of his time telling me about himself, telling me about his personality, telling me about his perspectives, and then concluding by telling me how I might speak so that he might interpret what I say. You know how much I said, right? Yeah, not, not much. Why? Because he was too busy talking about himself, telling me about himself, revealing this inner arrogance. And I might add, there was only one person in the world who didn't see the inner arrogance. You know who it was, right? Him. Everybody else saw it. When Abigail fell down at David's feet... She need not speak a word she had already spoken. She had spoken by her posture of humility. And David in the psalm, he conveys the same thing, except in this sense, he uses it by describing his eyes. His eyes, as it were, are a posture. My eyes are not raised too high, which is a Hebrew idiom meaning that he has humbled himself Before the Lord. He is, as it can be translated in the Hebrew, he is not haughty, but humble. A humble heart and eyes are a rare commodity in a world of self-promotion. One pastor observes this. He writes, It is difficult to recognize pride as a sin when it is held up on every side as a virtue urged as profitable, and rewarded as an achievement. What is described in Scripture as the basic sin is now described as basic wisdom. Improve yourself by whatever means you are able. Get ahead regardless of the price. Take care of me first. 
And he goes on to say, and it works for a limited time. And eventually, it's proven wrong. In contrast to this arrogance, Abigail considered herself, where she considered herself unworthy even to directly address David. If you read the account, and I encourage you to do so, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, she won't even call him David. She refers to him as it's translated, my Lord. She submits herself to his honor. She humbles herself. And she reminds, I might add, David of his relationship with the one true Lord. In fact, she offers the blessing of a meal. She asks David for forgiveness on behalf of her foolish husband. She respectfully reminds David of his role as the Lord's anointed and the future king of Israel. David learned humility in that moment, not by carrying out his own vengeance. He learned from the posture and subsequently the words of humble Abigail. Now in this psalm, David confesses not only a humility of heart and not only humility of eyes, but look with me at the text. He also talks about a perspective of humility. A perspective of humility. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The word translated occupy there in this part of the country, we might say concern. I don't concern myself with things that are too great, too marvelous. Matters that may concern us, let's be clear, are many. But there are some that we must not. To occupy our mind with the unknowable, well, that's more than fruitless. It's also presumptuous. Remember Satan's appeal to Eve? It wasn't, you will be blessed by God. Satan's appeal was what? You will be like God. And we often follow in her presumptuous footsteps, even obsessing on what we cannot know. When Scripture is crystal clear on the matter, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There is only one who may occupy himself with the great and the marvelous secret things. And he is not you. And he's not me. But it doesn't stop us from trying, does it? I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty good at following in Eve's footsteps here, aren't we? Think with me, just think with me about last week. I don't have to go that far on this, do I? I know myself. I'm presuming you're the same. What occupied your thoughts just this last week? What affected your emotions? Perhaps it was... The weather. That'll get you, right? I wish this Arkansas weather would make up its mind. Is it going to be hot or cold? Yes. (laughs) Right? Maybe it was a a, a national catastrophe that gripped your mind. Perhaps it was the timing 
of an event. Or perhaps it was just the worry of tomorrow. Have you ever stopped to ask, how many things occupy my thoughts that are completely out of my control? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, right? Guilty as charged, right? How many times are my thoughts captivated by something that is completely and totally out of my control? Have you ever considered how presumptuous this is? Have you ever considered that occupying yourself with the unknowable is simply veiled lust to be sovereign, to be like God? I don't know your list, but here is what I do know. I do know that we learn to trust the Lord with the unknowable. And when we trust the Lord with the unknowable, He blesses us with contentment. He blesses us with contentment. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, said this, Let him do what he will, for he will do what is best. And therefore, if God should refer the matter to me, says the meek and quiet soul, being well assured that he knows what is good for me better than I do for myself, I would refer it to him again. Let that occupy your imagination. Let him do what he will, for he will do what is best. As we are humans confined to time and space, we may not always think that way. We may presume that we know better than eternal God. And I don't think any of us would ever voice that. But I think many of us including yours truly, are guilty with so much of my mind being captivated with things that are, need to be left to God. And so I ask myself and I ask you this morning, why would I lift up my heart? Why would I raise up my eyes and occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me? When we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, we find contentment resting in the loving purpose of our God. And in this, we learn, we learn the often forgotten virtue of quietude. I almost have to just lower my voice when I say the word. Quietude. It's a beautiful word, isn't it? The blessing of quietude. And this is what David confesses. I have, look at the text with me, please. I have what? I have calmed. I have quieted my soul. It's not a passive statement. It's not like, well, this is happening to me. No, it's active. He is fully engaged in calming and quieting himself. From his heart, to his eyes, to his actions, he knows that he must actively engage or fall prey to the worries of this world. In other words, 
in our popular nomenclature, we might say, David is not living as if life is happening to him. (laughs) But we don't typically think this way. That's the point. We're told that active engagement means worrying over circumstances, fretting over situations, carrying ever and ever and ever increasing anxiety. I mean, if you really care, come on, if you really care, you worry. <laughs> and we typically translate worry, we translate it a little more palatable, right? It's, well, I'm just accepting responsibility, right? Yeah, nice try. No, it is really remarkable how far the prideful heart can lead us astray from the truth. In contrast, like a weaned child with his mother, David says, is his soul within me. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Like a weaned child with his mother is my soul within me. Nursing her child from birth, a mother teaches her child to be satisfied with her care and with her provision. A nursing child cannot feed herself, but is fully dependent upon her mother. And once weaned, that same child is satisfied in her mother's arms. And so is the child of God. We are to be calm and quiet in the sovereign care of our Lord. In the third chapter of Peter's first epistle, he gives counsel to husbands and wives. And I'm not going there today. I just want to draw your attention to one thing that I find so fascinating. Within this counsel, he cautions wives against adorning themselves outwardly at the expense of the inward. And he writes this, and I'm, I'm quoting from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. He says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And it's wise counsel for wives like Abigail. But what's often overlooked is it's wise counsel for all of us. An imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in God's sight, whether man, woman, or child. Peter says this earlier in his epistle. He says, when Christ was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God who judges justly. And it's for this reason that Paul teaches us in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, was em- but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And it is the cross of Christ, and it is in the cross of Christ that we find not only our model, but our means to a gentle and quiet spirit. By God's grace, through faith in Christ, we are redeemed, and we are restored in right relationship with our Creator. We pray not to an unknown God, but to our Heavenly Father. And we enjoy His loving presence by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. In Christ, then, we are enabled to to adorn ourselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. God gives us what is precious in His sight in Christ. Interestingly, a psalm that begins with personal confession, it ends, look with me, with an invitation to the church. O Israel, hope in the Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Far from selfish and self-absorbed introspection, no, David, he's inviting us. He's inviting us to join him with humble hearts and contented souls. We hope not in apprehensive expectation, but in full assurance. Because our hope is rooted, and our hope rests not in ourselves. If so, worry yourself. But our hope is rooted and rests Not in ourselves, but in God. It is also here an invitation to begin today. Look at the last verse with me. From this time. We pass over that really quickly, don't we? Right now. This moment. Today. From this time. Forth. And forevermore. Oh, and... Before I conclude, do you remember the rest of the story of Abigail? God delivered an almost instantaneous judgment upon Nabal, and he died without David having to exercise vengeance at all. Freed from the fool, Abigail married the king. We know little more about Abigail beyond her imperishable beauty, but we do know that she had but one request for David. To be remembered. And so she is. A woman who possessed the preciousness of a gentle and quiet spirit like Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we who are in Christ alone desire to be like Christ alone. And so our desire is to be a people that possess the preciousness of a gentle and quiet spirit. While we live in a world of saber rattling and an overexpression of the self, we who are in Christ look to Christ. And it is in Christ that we find not only the perfect example but the enabling and empowering to live in Him. And so we pray, O God, be gracious to us. 
and bless us with a mind like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.